Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Achtung, Achtung, which is, of course, German for attention, attention. Um, or, well, it's more than attention. It's look out, isn't it? It's like, ah, cripes. I mean, Achtung. I don't think I don't think attention has the vibe that Achtung in the it same way that because you, you, you just don't you don't say Achtung. No, you? you go Achtung. Yes, yeah, designed for it's designed for sort of it feels to me like it's designed for a more strident tone than perhaps yeah is. urgency yeah. a sense of urgency yeah exactly exactly anyway um, 80 years ago this week Ernst Udet Luftwaffe Colonel General shot himself while on the phone with his girlfriend Inga Bleiler um, a, com- a combination of the pressures of Operation Barbarossa his troubles with Hermann Goering and a complicated love life seems to have led to a complete mental breakdown yeah yes and uh, 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 drugs and drugs and drink I mean, uh, being a massive, massive boozer. I mean, the thing is, I, I often think w- w- with these uh, characters at the top of the um, Nazi tree, it's surprising more of them didn't, um, you know, at the end of the war, they all start topping themselves, obviously, because that, that that's the, the only actual exit, isn't it? But but it's surprising more of them don't succumb in this sort of way. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that suicide is a response to anything and we're not, we're not discussing suicide flippantly here. But it is interesting because, you know, if you are dealing with Herman Goering, they are all, they are all, they, a lot of them have complicated love lives. I mean, if you're involved in the pressure of Operation and a bit crazy in the operations of op- pressures of Operation Barbarossa, and also I suppose you don't get help, do you? If you're a proper Nazi, you don't you don't sit your mates down and go, oh, "You won't believe the, the week I've had," and and then they all say, "Oh, that's too bad, buddy." I mean, you know, because it's such a cutthroat atmosphere. So other people other people are taking glee in your misfortune, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the way the way the Nazis were. But I mean, in the case of the case of Udet, I mean, you know, it was huge intake of drugs and huge yeah. intake of drink. And you know, traditionally, that's not a great combination. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, if you add vast amounts of stress and failure um, yeah. onto that, then you know that is you know that again. Traditionally, that's when things start to go a little bit yeah. wrong. And, so it's not yeah. entirely surprising, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just surprised more of them that more more of this doesn't happen. Actually, anyway, curiously, two other men were killed on his on the way to his funeral. Fighter ace Werner Mulders died in a plane crash in Breslau. Ratzlav, modern name Ratzlav, and General der Flieger Helmut Wilberg was also killed in a different plane crash near Dresden. Because flying was, you know, it's dangerous. It's dangerous at the time. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and our Spanish Spanish correspondent James Holland. You're exploring the Spanish Civil War, Jim. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I had a, I had the most amazing day yesterday. It was it just surpassed all expectations because I was looking at the Battle of the Ebro, um, yeah, which was the last great hazard by the Republican forces, um, and yeah. 
you know, it basically followed the pattern of all the battles of the Civil War, which is basically the, the, the Republicans launch an attack, catch the Nationalists off, off guard, um, knock them back a few yards, then can't go any further. For yep. all the reasons that people don't go any further in the Second World War, you know, outstretching yep. their supplies, you know, blah, 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 um, don't have enough. Attacking is difficult. Uh, and then yeah, the nationalists, yeah. nationalists sort of claw their way back and then absolutely crush them into the ground. And, and, and it's the kind of the last roll of the dice, really. Because it's the kind of sort of at that point oh. after that, the kind of the door is open to Catalonia. But what, what's amazing about it is, is that right. it's just an incredibly beautiful part of the world. Very, very atmospheric. Um, and, and still loads to see. You know, dugouts and trenches and, you know, bits of rusty metal and all sorts really? of stuff. So, yeah, 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 and, and fantastic. And then, just at the end of it, when, you know, we've done this kind of sort of big yomp all around the kind of the, the hills. Um, so, basically, what they do is they cross over and then they get they, they they get a sort of, you know, about 25Ks, something like that, 15 to 25Ks. Yep. And then they get... They get pushed back up into the mountains, and they're holding the mountains. They're just gripping on to this this sort of this this mountain massif um, uh, until November. And the, and the Nationalists take an awful long time to kind of sort of work their way back. They're very kind of methodical um, in in how they they counterattack. Um, but then we went at the end of the end of the kind of the day. We then went to this town called uh, um, uh, Cobera uh, Debra. And it's it's it was sort of smashed by the Condor Legion stroke Luftwaffe, right? And they just left it, and so oh. it's just it's just a ruined village, a ruined really? village of two and two and a half thousand people, and it's absolutely extraordinary. It's so moving. I mean, it's just unbelievable, you know, because Is you that- can't help but kind of feel the kind of you know you've sort of half imagined the kind of the laughter of little children and all the rest yeah. of it and daily lives, and it's just yeah, it's just smashed. That was left by the Franco government as a sort of memorial to. Yes, because because basically what the what the, what the people at Colbera did, they, they just thought, okay, well, we'll just we'll just sort of rebuild the town a bit further down the slope. Right. Okay. Uh, and okay. they just left it there, and and you know right. Spain was impoverished, and they just couldn't be asked to kind of rebuild it, so they just left. Right. It. Okay. And, and then and then of course you know in 1975 there was this sort of pact of forgetfulness that you yep. know, they just weren't going to sort of you know there was going to be a complete amnesty of everybody and, and yep. people just weren't going to talk about it, and it wasn't until. The left wing government came in in two thousand that they actually started saying actually no maybe we it is time to come talk about this stuff yeah 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 and it wasn't until yeah, yeah. two thousand and five that they started sort of you know going around excavating for the bodies that had been dumped on side side of roads and stuff and yep. I was talking to a guy this morning actually he was talking about the Ebro and they're saying they're still finding bodies there um, you know people so so fascinating anyway we did we did record a, a podcast I'm hoping that the quality the audio quality is good. I kind of mm. listened back to it a couple of times and it sounded to be it sounded okay. But but I hope that's come out because it was um we did it as we were going. So you know, we'd we go to the kind of sort of the command post of yeah. the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, which is you know, the fifteenth International Brigade. Um, which is sort of in the you know, underneath this rock face that had been sort of carved out, this sort of horrible cave. Yeah. Uh, and we'd sort of do a little bit there and then we'd sort of climb up the mountain and we'd find something else and we'd do a little bit more there and you know, and then we we've kind of finished off in this this ruined village, um, and it was incredibly atmospheric. It really yeah. was amazing, but, amazing story. Jim, and, and you know, and Jim, so many kind of things that you know one's learned from the Second World War, you carry over into. Yeah, but trouble is, I'm just not interested in this because it's not the Second World War. You've gone off, you've gone off piece here. I'm just not interested. Couldn't care less. Couldn't care less. It's a fair response, <laughs> in one I respect. But on the other hand, you you've, you've had an amazing weekend, haven't you? I've I mean, had an I mean, extraordinary weekend. I'm just sort of thinking, God, a weekend of extremes for us. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes. I mean, you've been doing your, you've been burrowing into the detail, and I've been. I, I so on Friday I did this uh, children in need drumathon thing, 
which was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. Full stop. So, and and the thing is, this has been this has been one of those things that you know when you agree to a thing in your diary and you think, well, that'll never come around. That's months and months away, and that never happened. Or, or you know, I needn't worry about that. Suddenly the day, suddenly the day's upon me, and I haven't looked at the rehearsal. Uh, video sent back. So, so Mark Richardson, who's the drummer in Skunk and Nancy, co- coordinated it all, ran it all. He's he's I, I've known him for years and years and years. And and so I got I got dragged in because of the drum company, all this sort of stuff, because of the British drum company. And um, and suddenly there were a lot of my a lot of people I know there, and there are a lot of people I didn't know. But drummers, th- there's that thing. Drummers have all got the, the the you know. It's like any. It's actually it's it's interesting. It's like any community where they've all got the set, the one thing in common. There's every different type of person, but they've all got the understanding that, you know, that they're playing drums. In the way that Warfest was a bit like that, you have every different type of person on the planet, but everyone's into the same subject. So you just a shared thing. Anyway, when the when we the first time we rehearsed it, so it was 40 drummers, a samba band, the Royal Marines, Evelyn Glennie at the back with her sort of insane rig of percussion. The first time we rehearsed it, and it's just a bit, it's the BBC News sort of intro theme music, the hold music, basically, that, that you know. Um, the first time we rehearsed it was the most amazing like rush of everyone everyone playing this thing in unison together. The togetherness of it, the racket of it, and the sort of power of it in the room is just absolutely incredible. And with you know Pudsey doing his doing his Royal Marines, um, uh, you know white drumsticks up and down, touching his nose, business It's incredible. So we did that, and then and then I came home and and you know. Oh, I. Um, well, I saw it. I did see it. Rachel sent me a link to it, and I, yeah. I, I just thought it was absolutely incredible. It was incredible on an iPhone. So yeah, 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 yeah. Be there. It must yeah. have been totally stupendous. I completely well, get it. Well, and it's in there. It's in the BBC's Philharmonic Hall. In they've got a studio, Philharmonic Orchestra recording studio in in the Salford, you know, Media City, and so it's a big room with a lot with a lot of room sound in it. So you hit a snare drum, and then it goes wah like that. It doesn't just go bat, doesn't just go bat like like it would in here. It goes wah like that with the sound of the room. So what once once you've got forty drummers all playing together, and the thing is, is no one could just sit there and um, twiddle their thumbs. So everyone starts playing in the gaps and mucking about together, and it was it was absolutely sensational. And then yesterday. So then, so then, then I had a normal day on Saturday, and then yesterday, um, uh, so we're this is out Tuesday, but we're recording Monday. I went to the um, International Plastic Modeling Society, Model Society, twenty twenty one show, Scale Model World Show, which is a bit scaled down from normal because because of the pandemic and because they're you know they were sort of relaunching really, but it was incredible. There was one table where all they do is Churchills, right? So every possible manifestation of Churchill you you could think of even like there's there was even like a concept Churchill that had a 17 pounder and they would put the meteor in and and so they changed all the hatches and the you know for the different engine and the exhausts and they you know uh, absolutely everything and um and I met lots and lots of independent company members um Fred in particular um Modelers United who comes on who sits on the lives cast and says oh I don't dare comment and then uh, uh, oh I know he comments and there's someone else so I I mean I met I met must have met um a dozen people who listened to the podcast um it was very very sweet and uh the standard of the modeling is insanely high so, so has, I, it, uh, has it ta- has it taken it on to a kind of further galaxy do you think um, yeah, of kind of yeah, you know, upping the game 
Yeah, absolutely. Although, I mean, I, I, I didn't spend very much money. I, I, I didn't get sucked well, into Well, I was a bit worried money. about that. I was a bit worried that you were going to go completely <laughs> mad. No. And, and you well, know, not well, be able to I, actually get, get, get it all in the car. Well, I got some very good Sherman, uh, Sherman tracks, some excellent Sherman tracks that a Russian, a Russian off mar- uh, aftermarket bloke makes. Oh, and Simon Red Five Models were there. I had a really nice chat with, um, who's, who's a, you know, he's, he's a lovely bloke and, and his father. And so I, but it was, it was, it was again, it was entering one of those communities where everyone's got the same thing in common. So it was weirdly like the drumming thing because there's everyone, everyone's there for the same reason. Um, it's just more walks of life. And from all walks of life, oh, and, and, and also, then, I, I, you, you sent you sent a photograph of little Daisy yeah. getting stuck in, and I thought, ah, oh, good girl. Yeah, well, she painted. We did a we did a World War One, you know, Mark Five male tank, and she painted it. I mean, blue. As, a, as, a, as a kind of starter, that's uh, that's yeah. you know. I assembled it, and then she painted it blue, red, and purple because she likes red. And likes purple, you know. Um, uh, but but it was it was really really good and 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 fascinating. And again, you get that thing. I, I think that I think there's been some pushback in the modelling world to just like how uh, uh, to the sort of cool German gear thing that used to be around a long time ago. There were some really cool tigers there, and there were some cool panthers and stuff. But the sort of sheer amount of British kit um, that was on display, and there was an amazing Battle of Britain. Um, uh, uh, thing the incredible, defiant, and a hurricane, beautiful the hurricane. Of the revolution, I say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyway, um, ne- uh, and and also met all sorts of people. Had, um, so hello to everyone. I can't remember all your names, and there were so many of you. But hello, going everyone. Thanks, thanks for all the tips. Um, uh, extremely. You learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned, to, and then the bloke who showed me around. So Dave Berryman, who's a chalk volunteer, oh, showed yes, me around. Oh yes, great. So you saw Dave. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. So Dave, Dave, it was Dave who got me along. And then, and then I met. Um, uh, uh, I was shown around by a guy who works at Shape. He's in the RAF. He works at Shape, and he's he's part of a sort of um, you know, NATO political liaison with at Shape, but also likes making mosquitoes at the weekend. <laughs> How extraordinary. So do you yeah. think do you think the, the the table of Churchills is part of a quiet revolution that is taking place, which is rehabilitating Britain's war effort? Definitely. And but the, the lads on that table, though, this is the best tank of the Second World War. You know. Wow, amazing. I mean, you know, because you know, ten years ago, if you were if you were into sort of you know living history and reenactment, and you were British, you'd either be American or you'd be a German. You know, and you'd be a Tommy third, wouldn't you? Yeah, but now, yeah. now people want to be Tommies again. Yeah, I think it's because they kind of they yeah, sort of they've realised that the turtle helmet is actually quite quite a thing. <laughs> I also think I also think it's because there's been a recentering um, uh, culturally about about the military in our culture and that people are having another look at another look at the Second World War because of Afghanistan and Iraq, and because there I think there there was such a major cultural shift during Afghanistan and Iraq in our the way we look at the forces that people have gone back to look at our forces rather than just think of people in khaki as dad's army i think that's the i think that's part of that's what's gone really, on really really interesting and i suspect you're right yeah cuz i think cuz cuz so much so much around afghanistan and iraq was you know the stuff at royal wood and bassett was basically a way of people protesting without actually Without having to join the Stop the War Coalition, you know, without having to be like a, a basically not not a super left wing way of protesting about Britain's foreign involvement in stuff, and so that's made people re-engage perhaps with the military. I don't know, and also the passing of the generation that that did the fighting. I think I think that has got people back into the idea of Tommy's a bit more 
than maybe was around, you know. Yeah, and also and I think there is a, I also I think there is a, just a broadly, I think there is a there is a change in the way people think about the Second World War, which yeah. which obviously you know, puts the onus back onto the onto the Allies a bit more, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's come from, it's coming from all sorts of different places. I think <clears throat> that's the interesting thing. Anyway, um, oh, but the st- so I've been uh, uh, Andy Akak Aitchison because um, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm writing a bit about Peter White in my in my book, and he sent me the battle diaries for the Fourth uh, KOSB, right? Who are in Fifty Second Lowland Division, Fifty Second Lowland Division, um, in the. Uh, was part of first allied airborne army as a like air land not not air landing in the sense of six air landing uh, in the sense of first air landing brigade so glider born they were going to be troop born you know wait landed in dakotas so they're there on a couple of those aborted airborne missions where operations where you know they were going to land someone was going to capture an airfield then they were going to reinforce in the airfield right but in the battle diary for Fourth KOSB, twenty second of September. Here's a here's two and a quarter hours that might make you fill your underpants. Twenty second of September, fourteen hundred hours. CO held further briefing conference for company commanders and equivalents. Operation to be known in battalion as Yank, so as in uh, Yankee Doodle. Outline plan: Fourth KOSB with similar force from Five KOSB and Skeleton Brigade HQ, um, especially modified by. Uh, b- b- uh, Battery, forward artillery to land in gliders west of main Nijmegen, Armagen, Arnhem axis and move up to southern banks of River near Arnhem to protect the rear of first airborne division positions, right? That's at two o'clock. Quarter past four, operation cancelled. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I did wonder where you, where you were heading with this, but there you go. And the 5th Battalion, the 5th Battalion, because they're also in 42nd Lowland, the 5th Battalion KSB, it just says, Operation Planned, Operation Cancelled. It doesn't go into any detail. doesn't go into detail. And then the appendices, yeah, the appendices are then how to load a Waco glider. You know, what what the Waco glider loadings are. I mean, also, holy shit, you know, I mean, imagine getting that, 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 that briefing. And then, oh, God, we've never been in a glider before. Oh, crap, what's that going to be like? And then it's... Yeah, cool. as opposed to kind of just launching an attack through the Reichswald or whatever. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, we hope you all enjoyed our Remembrance Day special last Thursday. I had to listen to it. I don't always listen to the podcast, but I thought I should listen back to that one. And yeah, it was I did very, too. I thought it was rather, rather touching, wasn't it? It was very, very moving. And, also, um, I mean, I know we only deal with Second World War here, but it was quite nice to, to, have, to have a few others as well. Yeah, no, I thought. I thought his friend who was in the Balkans with. I thought that was really. No, I thought that. I think. I think that's. You know, you you can't put. You can't. I mean, obviously, you go into a Spanish Civil War battlefield that exceeds our statute of limitation uh, uh, limitations and our and the terms and conditions that apply to this podcast. But um, I think on Remembrance Day, no, such such things uh, are waived because we had First World War people as well. And I thought. I, th- I thought it was very very touching and um, and interesting and. Very, very nice feedback on Twitter about people listening in um, uh, ill-hoovered rooms, put it that way. Um, and family stories. I, I jumped the gun. I thought the family stories were coming about this Sunday, but it's next Sunday. So, so in other words, this week, family stories returns on Sunday. Um, and we've got enough stories to keep us going until Christmas. Well, all uh, I can tell you is the ones that I read out were absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the Madagascar one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. I'm, not, I'm not doing any more spoilers than that. Incredible. But just go, but just very briefly, just go back to the Spanish Civil War. I kind of felt that it was okay because it involved the Russians 
and Mussolini and the Italians, and also quite a few people, and quite a few people who then subsequently fought in the in the um, in the Second World War, including the guys who were in the first Spanish tank in to Paris. Right. All oh, right. The so first got... tank into Paris was was by a Spanish crew who would fought for the Republicans in the, in the Spanish Civil War. So both sides well represented then. I felt so. Yeah, I mean, if that, I mean, what we can do, James, if you want, is we can roll the start of the Second World War back earlier. I mean, there's a strong argument for that anyway. If we're going to, well, and also, we, you if know, you think about it, we have done, we've done, we've done China, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. 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 I don't want to make a habit of it, but I just think you know, as an exception. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, I think we allow. I think we allow it. I mean, it's it's R and D, isn't it, for the main competents anyway, isn't it? Two of them. Um, now, I got sent a brilliant article by Matt Bone. Um, who's the typhoon expert about about the typhoon? Because oh, when we did I'm, I'm when we did a picture when we did a picture paints thousand words a while ago, um, I was I was a bit glib about the typhoon, you know, about oh the tail falls off and he's, and the stuff he sent me is absolutely amazing. Do you know how they found out what the problem was with it, with the with the tail? They basically um, uh, put a typhoon on a rig at Farnborough and shook it to pieces until they found the frequency. They found that between 9.3 hertz and 13.2 hertz, there was a major resonance through the fuselage, which was which was starting to started to um, pull the aeroplane apart. How amazing! And do and, and um, okay. So so I remember Winkle Brown when he um so so Jeffrey De Havilland Jr. in let's say 1950. Yeah. Anyway, he was in the DH8. Yes, it crashed it. DH one oh eight. Yeah. Wasn't it? DH one oh eight, I think it was. Yeah. And 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 that's when he crashed and he was trying to break this the sound barrier. And yeah. he his plane started to oscillate. Yeah. Uh, so much so that he couldn't control it anymore and he broke his neck. Yeah. And Winkle Brown then had to fly up in the other one and find out what the problem was. But because he was a lot smaller, he didn't yeah. break his neck, so he was fine. Right. And afterwards, when he came back down again, they, a couple of weeks later, they got a report in from another aircraft that had been flying at the time. And they reported that what they saw was a kind of sort of complete blur. So they saw the aircraft and it just... The aeroplane was doing that. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. And well, I'm the... just wondering whether, whether it's that kind of, you know, whether that kind of oscillation happened with the typhoon. Well, what happened is, is yes, is the, the resonance created a node so that the... the the vibrations free, focused on one point and that's where the plane would snap because they moved, they moved the reinforcement up the aircraft to try and cause the tail would break off, uh, it, you know, wherever. So they'd move, they'd cover that patch and then it would break off fur- and it would move further and further up because the fuselage is modal. So they'd, they'd used a similar structure for the, for the monocot for the, for the body they'd used, they'd used a similar structure to the hurricane, but instead of it being covered with um, fabric, it was covered with metal. So, so they had a, and then, and then a sort of box frame for the, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm praising very, very um, uh, uh, imprecisely here, but basically, so they had a modal aircraft, so you could take bits off and put bit back, bits back on, which is very good for maintenance and everything, very handy. But basically, so this, but this node developed because of the frequency and the plane would snap there. So what they had to do was change the, the, uh, the mass balance weight and they um, and how added, did you do that? well, I don't know, this is, so they added an inertia weight. Below the control column, of six pounds, and uh, and, I mean, and six pounds and, is nothing. That, That's like two cricket bats. Yeah. So that and that tweaked out where the plane would go. Would basically the plane would sing with the vibrations of its flight, and they and they tuned that note out. It's absolutely amazing. 
right? And and the thing of and the thing, of course, with the typhoon is it's late. The air, the engine doesn't work properly. You know, they've had real problems with the engine, and it, and it's it's late. You know, even though um, Cam got a jump start on the spec, he he was ahead. He knew what was coming with the specification that they wanted a heavy a heavy fighter for fighting bombers. So so he gets in early with his proposal, but he's still late. And and this problem is sort of basically a symptom of the rush of of get trying to get types ready. Um, but I mean, th- this thing of well, vibration. The, 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 the air ministry and the RAF are not the only people, are they? I mean, you know, you look at all those 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 Messerschmitt one hundred and nine replacements. Yeah. You know, the two hundred and nine, the three hundred and nine, the absolute dogs. You know, they just yeah. don't work at all. Have to be cancelled. You know, and then they finally do. They sort of push up the the uh, up gun the the E, don't they, with the F, and then the G, the Gustav, and the Gustav keeps catching fire. You know, and, yeah. and then you have all the problems with the Heinkel one seven seven. So you know, it's it, it's hardly unique, and and it's 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 part of the problem isn't it of of having to as you say invent in a hurry you know things which are is still incredibly new yeah. technology yeah. and knowledge and understanding and sort of cram it into such yeah. a well that's interesting because this vibration thing i remember that you know the tsr2 the the fabled thing that looks like an angel interceptor from the 60s right the first time they took that out, the undercarriage, I think, I can't remember, the undercarriage made the pilot's eyeballs, the frequency from that made the pilot's eyeballs vibrate, hit the right note to make their pilot's eyeballs vibrate to the point we couldn't see. That's absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely and of course, who's amazing. one of the main test pilots for the TSR2? It's, it's BB Mont. And who's one of the key test pilots for the Typhoon? BB Mont. Same bloke. Yeah. Amazing. Anyway, I'll tell you well, what we're going to do, because we're, we're um, 25 minutes in, so we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back with some questions, which we may even answer. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. Um, we've been discussing uh, weekends of drumming, scale modelling, the Spanish Civil War, vibrating eyeballs, but... Now we have to do some uh, questions, don't we, Jim? Because we, you we know, do because really, we were supposed to do them last week and we didn't even get one done, did we? I know, I know. It's really, I, you know, I'm not embarrassed about it, but I, I sometimes think, you know, I don't want to get anyone's hopes up with this podcast. <laughs> and then no, dash no, them. no, no. We've got to be realistic. We've got to, we've got to answer a few. <laughs> right. So this is from Martin Martin Lowcock, who says. Thomas E. Ricks argues that one thing that the Allies got right was that they routinely sacked generals who didn't produce the desired results. Do you think he's right? Or does the sacking of senior officers, senior leaders for things which may be beyond their control, just waste talent and encourage political infighting? Thanks, Martin. Well, that's a bit of a hot potato, isn't it? I mean, you know, everyone sacks sacks generals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're unlucky enough to be sacked in the Soviet Union, then you, you, you it tends to be a little bit more than just being sacked. Yes. Um, curiously, you know, Hitler before July 1944 doesn't execute people. He just sacks them. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, but that's really because... Difficult. I, I think sometimes, you know, I think, I think that, you know, it, it's the same with, with modern business, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, quite often, you know, you can be incredibly brilliant and you get to the top and then, then you're in charge when some catastrophic disaster happens and you've got to go because yeah. ultimately you're responsible. And I suppose that's the same with army commanders, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, but Hitler would sack people and then reinstate them. That was pretty, that's pretty frequent, isn't it? And I think, I think he, that so much of the time he's showing you, I think he probably knows perfectly well sometimes that, You've got someone, and actually circumstances have turned out 
badly for them. I mean, because he's because he's everything that Hitler's doing is political. Absolutely every aspect of it has to be regarded as political. Even the, the, the you know even the decisions that look like they're military are effectively political. He's always thinking politically, which is why he can't think strategically because he's he's basically he's he's always on he's always on jam tomorrow and he's always he's always sort of uh, 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 gambling on, isn't he? Uh, politically. So, but but so maybe do you think he's do you think when he fires a general he's doing it pour on courage les autres but also keeping his options open to bring them back because there's a limited pool of talent you know actually I don't know because I think I think at the time you know when he's sort of sacking Guderian or something or von Rundstedt I think he just goes you know I'm really cross you've let me down I'm sacking you and, yeah. and then. You know, then he sacks a whole load of other people and then he sacks someone else, someone else. And kind of 18 months further on, he's kind of, as you say, you know, it's kind of who else is there? So he goes, OK, well, you know, they've been punished enough. And, you know, I was in a bad mood that day, but I'm kind of sort of yeah. seeing the light. And actually, you know, oh, good old Guderian, he, he was quite good on the MERS, wasn't he, back in 1940? Yeah. The, you know, at the time of my greatest victory, which obviously was really about me. But I suppose he did play a small part in it. So perhaps I ought to bring yeah, yeah, him back. Yeah. I think it's more than that. I think it's, I don't, I don't think, at the, I think at the time he's sacking them, he's sacking them. Right. But I think it's sort of in the cool light of day, kind of 18 months further on, then he kind of, you know, he suddenly remembers them or, or I don't think he ever forgets them exactly, but I, you know, pretty, I think he sort of thinks... Because pretty much everyone gets fired at some point, don't they? I mean, it's how it goes. If you're, if you know, if you're four-star and up, they all get fired I mean, even Roll gets sacked, doesn't he? You know, he gets, he gets yeah. made army group, command of army group B in Italy and then Kassering usurps him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there's that going on too, isn't there? Is the is the, is the infighting? But the allies, the allies do sack people. I mean, I've just started Rob Rob Lyman's amazing book about the Burma campaign. Um, the War of uh, Empires. Oh my God, it's good. Uh, it's it, it, it's groundbreaking. That book. I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put no, it down. It's completely that, brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm I'm about I'm about um, a quarter of the way through it, and I, I you know a bit like you know. If, as we've been saying, I've been really busy, but I haven't been able to put it down in the gaps. It's absolutely fantastic. But, but you know, when you look at what's going on with Hutton and and then Wavell showing up and, you know, with the, the, the first the first phase in Burma. And, you know, I so want to ask Rob about that. I so want to talk to Rob what, about, about that. and all that? Oh, the whole thing. And, um, and, and Irwin, you know, Noel Irwin, it's just... Well, and the Burma army and, and you know, uh, you know, everyone being distributed in penny packets... Um, they're incapable of being able to fight in penny packets and distributing them in penny packets is a bad idea, really. Anyway, it always has been. You know, and, you know, Slim's, Slim when Slim is on the scene going, well, you're defending territory, but what for? You're just obsessed with territory. It's What are you trying to do? And people do get, I think it's interesting, people get fired um, after all that. You know, Smythe is relieved of his command, but then, you know, fair enough, he blows the Sitang River um uh, uh, you know, uh, well before two thirds of his uh, men are across. Although there's an amazing, it's really, really funny opening sentence in one of in one of Rob's chapters, which I, kind of, which I <laughs> really made me laugh. When um, uh, where is it? Um, uh, oh yeah, here we go. Chapter five. Chapter five, which is entitled "We Could Send." We could, at any rate, send a man. And the first chap, first sentence is during this time. Smythe was in agony, unable to walk for long periods, suffering regular injections of strychnine to treat a painful and debilitating fissure of the anus. <laughs> oh my goodness! Man. 
Well, that's such a great opening sentence because because the whole campaign's like a fissure, a debilitating fissure of the anus. Fissure of the anus. <laughs> they really have got you know what that they're they're at the wrong end of, they're at the wrong end of the world if you're trying to fight on behalf of the British Empire. They haven't got the stuff. It's a run. The whole thing's a running sore. It, I mean, it's like the most perfect metaphor for what's for what's going wrrong. But but it's actually happening to him. It's too ghastly. But 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 you know, Smythe sacked on the spot, isn't he? He sm- he sacked sacked then and there. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And then you know, uh, 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 and they're all trying to figure out what to do, but they know they can't do anything. It's that really interesting gap. It, really interesting thing, isn't it? Where. The elephant in the room is their their formations, and it's not to say they're men, but they're organized. You know, you can't you can't lead effectively if the whole thing isn't up to scratch. It's not just that the men haven't been trained properly. Well, who hasn't trained them properly? They're officers. So so the officers, if the men are, if you you know, you can't complain that your squaddies are no good because it's you that's trained them, and and who's gripped the training? Well, the the you know the people higher up the food chain, and who's who's in charge of that? Well, the people running the army. So so. But they set themselves all these objectives that are essentially impossible. And they know it, really. But they do it anyway. I mean, it's the most extraordinary sort of paralysis. And way it's we're going. Yeah, but, it, but it's also the sort of, uh, you know, appalling complacency, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the, the Japanese, there is, there is, you know, they, they consider them to be racially inferior. Yeah. They're, 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 they're snooty about them. They, yeah. They've completely taken their eye off the, off the ball. Yeah. Um, and... They're just not expecting it. But then they flip. But but they flip from. They've got is poor. The training is poor. The troops are poor. Yeah, everything is poor. Every 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 which way you look at it, it's poor. Yeah, and they flip. But they flip from because they're all looking at China and going, "If the Chinese can give these guys a run around for four years, it's not going to be difficult, is it?" That's that's a big part of the thinking, which again is worth bearing in mind. It's not just it's not just uh, that people from Japan are racially racially inferior or something. The Chinese are even worse. The Chinese are even worse. And look, the Chinese can give the have given the Japanese a run around all the time. So they have actually got military things, military a military way of assessing what the Japanese might be might be or might not be capable of. But that's by not really knowing anything about what's going on in China. Not really. Like the scale of it and the you know, the the, the but, but, churn but now, of it. Isn't, isn't the whole point about empire is is that it's it, it, it's always been run by very, very skeleton forces. Yeah, of course. And, and, yeah, when, yeah. and whenever, whenever, whenever the oppo kind of sort of really rises up against you, you suffer a catastrophic defeat, and then you claw your way back. Whether that be the kind of you know General Gordon at Khartoum, yeah. whether it be the Indian Mutiny, yeah, whether it be you know Singapore and Malaya in and, and Burma yeah, yeah. in nineteen forty two. Yeah, it's 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 the same approach because the whole point about about empire is that you don't have squillions of people all over the place yeah. and squillions of troops. It's it's a very low maintenance. Well, because because then it would be even because then it would be even less worth having an empire because after all, uh, then by be this, having, of course, of course. So, because so, by this point, the British Empire is is you know is is imploding the, anyway. Yeah, exactly, and, 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 and becoming and too costly. Yeah, and, and and the only point of it is is as a source of resources, really. Yeah, and cheap but, resources. But I think it's interesting though because Smythe gets sacked, Hutton gets sacked, doesn't he? You know, they 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 get fired. Slim, however, has had his disasters and isn't fired um, because his disasters have been in East Africa. Yeah, where no one's America. looking, <laughs> where no one's looked, and and I mean that is the great advantage of of you know out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, yeah. I you mean, know, the American is in Iran, isn't he? 
Yeah, and then the Americans were into firing people, though, weren't they? That that certainly you get. You, uh, and well, and I suppose you do get you get British divisional commanders fired in, in uh, Normandy, don't you? There, there's, yeah, and, there's, it's, and it's and it's mainly Dempsey who's firing them, not Montgomery. It's always yeah. it's always erroneously said it's Monty. Yeah, yeah. Monty gets rid of Crooker, doesn't he? But no, yeah, I think that's, right. that's also that's also Dempsey's Dempsey, and um, is 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 gets rid of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, the thing is, though. I mean, the Allies do sack people, but then they, but again, they also, you know, Patton is fired. Patton is relieved of his job, although, although, you know, they're also they've decided they need to wind down that army because they're not going to need it. Um, you know, so so, but he's well, fired until as, August nineteen forty four, anyway. Yeah, but he, exactly, but he's fired, right? And but then they also they hire him pretty quickly. You know, he basically has Christmas kicking his heels and cursing his rotten luck and the people who are out to get him. And then and then by by Jan, you know, he's given the he's given the. Um, the job in January, isn't he? Uh, although it's all secret, he's back in back in in a role, and the role he role he, not quite the role he wants, but a role, you know because they know they need him because they know he's good enough, and they know they know that, and he's one of Ike's people, and all that, you know, all the things that all the things that favour his appointment. So I mean, it, I mean, it's divisional. And the Japanese also sack a lot of people as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. You know, and, and, and if you know, one of the kind of sort of most common ways of responding to that, obviously, is to take your own life. Oh Christ! But yeah, oh. they do, don't they? I mean, yeah, 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 a, lot, yeah. a lot of them do. Yeah, yeah, because because that that I suppose it's the shame, and also I mean, is it? Yeah, I mean, you can't go to the and golf. The dishonour you brought onto your family, so therefore, there's only yeah. one way to deal with that. Yeah, yeah, you can't go to the shops or the golf club. Fill your guts out with a big knife. Yeah. Oh God. I mean, it's it's interesting though because because one of the prob I mean, one of the issues is though. I mean, because the Americans, the Americans. I mean, it's divisional commanders who tend to get sacked, isn't it? Rather than and brigadiers and people like further down, you know. Oh yes. What's that? What's that division? There's that division, isn't there? That American division in Normandy that, that's yeah. underperforming. Yeah. Um. And it gets sacked. Oh, which one is it? Well, and fo- and and Font, your mate Fontoma, as he's you know uh, Thomas. Thomas, who, who who is sacking, he's always sacking people, isn't he? Let's sacking battalion commanders and and brigadiers like pretty frequently, isn't he? And he's and because he doesn't think they've they've got enough drive and enough blood yeah. and guts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's really interesting because because that's also a way if you're him, if you're that if you're that divisional commander, that's also a way of of uh, making making yourself look tough when things haven't worked out, isn't it? Well, I've sacked them, you know. You know, Dempsey's on the phone going, what's going on, Thomas? Is it, you're, you're, you're stuck, are you? He goes, well, I've sacked the brigadier. He's no well, problem. Well, yeah, that, 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 you know, brigade commander was absolutely hopeless. I've, you know, I mean, you know, far too cautious. I've sacked him. Yeah, and that gets him that gets him out of trouble, doesn't it? He's taken action. He's dealt with it rather than him getting fired because uh, his, his plan's lousy or whatever. Yeah, you're a really horrible piece of work. <laughs> Genuinely ghastly. He was I mean, the most unpleasant divisional commander in the British Army. But what do you what do you do when you're sacked? Because because if you're a, if you're a major general and you're fired, would you end up do you end up at the staff college or do you do you go fly fishing? I mean, what do you do? Yeah, well, for the most part, you get your you know unless you're retirement age, you'll 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 get a you know a job back at, back in the UK. You know, you're not going to get you know kick you out of the army. Yeah, you're you're being sacked from that position. Yeah. So you're you're then given a, a kind of you're not given a demotion in rank. You're given a demotion in command. Yeah. Well, Frank Messervy gets get 
I mean, the other thing, you get is you get flicked to another theatre, don't you? That's the only thing that happens. Is your 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 extract? Yeah, so he's from... he's some armored armored division commander in, and and he's a fall guy for to Brooke, and it's absolutely nothing yeah. to do with him whatsoever. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's completely not his fault. But he goes over and thank goodness he does because you know he goes over and 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 says says actually you know you're looking about this armored warfare completely the wrong way in Southeast Asia you should be thinking about getting medium tanks then you need Grants yeah. and you need Shermans and everyone goes can't possibly they're far too heavy and he goes no they're not they're absolutely fine yeah and, and proves it um, and so that's why they have it and, yeah. and you know he's a, he's a brilliant fighting commander ends yeah. up being a core commander in Burma and, and does it brilliantly yeah. Yeah, funnily enough, I got a grant at the model show that's going to be uh, an admin box grant when I'm done with it. Nice. Fair. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, what, they, they, they were the um, something carboneers, weren't they? Um, yeah, um, whatever they were. Were they Lancers, weren't they? Were they Lancers? I can't the admin box. No, I think they were. Oh, God, I can't remember now. They were, anyway. They were something, something. Anyway. Carboneers. Anyway, um, uh, let's do another question. Let's do let's do another question. Here we go. Hi, Alan James. This is from Peter Merriman. I've recently started listening to your fantastic podcast and being an obsessive engineering type. I start at the beginning of now reached eight, episode 48. God, you've got a long way to go, mate. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying the chat and I've learned a huge amount so far. Many thanks for bringing this to the world. As an ex-submariner, I'm glad to see some future episodes about the war under the sea, which I'm really looking forward to listening to. Some fantastic models of submarines there yesterday, Jim. My question is... Were coastal forces worth the expenditure in men and material? Were they just a bunch of peacetime yachtsmen messing about in boats? Keep up the good work. Well, I think release Stephen Fisher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think he's not He's not just talking about the MTBs, is he, and, and the coastal no. forces. I mean, I know that that's coastal forces, but he's also talking about the Royal Naval, Naval Patrol Service, isn't he? That's Harry Tate's Navy and the kind of converted yeah. trawlers yeah. And, and all the rest of it. You know, put a cannon yeah. on, the, on the poop deck and, yeah. you know, trawl for mines instead of mackerel. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think they're a waste of time at all. No, I think that they're, they're essential. I mean, they're like, it's, it's like the but it's like the Navy's nervous system, though, isn't it? Basically, it's it's the the you know we there's a temptation to think of capital ships and submarines, isn't there? But the Navy is the Navy is a is a billion times you know we talk about the small ships at at at, at Dunkirk or whatever, but but the the Navy's small ship contingent. You know, tugs and boats. I mean, the, and lighters the entire thing, and all the rest but of lighters. It. But it, but with the channel, you have basically need you need a like a full, fully functional nervous system, don't you? Of 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 boats patrolling and looking for stuff, and you know. So I, yeah, I don't think it, I don't. Well, think I've always argued that one of one of the main reasons why the Royal Navy is so successful in the Second World War is because a it's big in the first place, but b it's able to expand very quickly because. You've got a large number of people in the UK because it's an island nation who mm. know, have a base layer of understanding, you know, who have sailed yeah. yachts and yeah. dinghies and, and what have you. So they know about yeah. tides and rip rip tides and they know about, you know, knots and whatever stuff it is you do on a, in a boat. Uh, and, and that yeah. base layer is really, really important when you're suddenly trying to trying to expand because... You have a, you know, it's like someone who's who's already got a sort of smattering of French, you know, if yeah. you're trying to kind of brush up. I mean, you you know, it's it's not as hard to train people, is it? So you yeah. can train them quicker and easier and more effectively. And also because your service is is bigger in the first place, what it means is you can sprinkle the experience yeah. at a wider net and also draw in new people who already have that base level of knowledge, which makes them incredibly effective. Well, and this is, but this is also a thing that the army in the Second World War has that it's never had before in its history, wouldn't you say? Is that, is that 
The First World War is the first big army that the, the British state has ever fielded. So you still the got the leftovers leftover. from that? So Well, you, you're in t- everyone, everyone who's an officer, uh, you know, above major, is, ex- is, an, is, is a, probably a combat experienced soldier. In a way that the, in the First World War, they're not. You, you know, well, that's certainly totally fair point. I've never really thought about it like that. Uh, and and everyone's everyone, you know. I mean, we talked about the Home Guard the week before last. Everyone in that, if they're in their if they're in their forties, everyone in the Home Guard is an experienced soldier, probably. You know, and it and it's that sort of um, there's a there's a big chunk of muscle memory actually in the army that doesn't exist in the First World War. Um, the 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 issue is that the way of fighting's changed. And you've not you and you've not spent any money on it in the inter, in the interim, We're, uh, and and but so I think that maybe is why, I mean it's, I think that I mean I I, I mean I'd not thought this before this is occurring to me right this second so I mean I, how that plays into how the army works I mean maybe maybe it holds it up because you've got a load of people going this is how we used to do it whereas the the navy well, I suppose of, actually that's even true for the RAF isn't it because you've got plenty of yeah. people who fought, who flew with the RFC or operated with the yeah RAF. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, just to go back back to the the, the main point about the co- the coastal forces. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. they they're playing a vital role, aren't they? And I think it's one of those. I think it's one of those areas, along with actually with RF Coastal Command, that has just been really underwritten about, underappreciated, understood. Yeah, um, under understood. If you know what I mean. Um, and and actually, we you know that, that that makes me think we you know we should do more about it. Um, you know, we should get Steve back on or whatever. But I think you know we should do do a bit more research into it. There's, yeah. I also want to get there's a, there's an amazing um, historian of, of coastal command that I want to get on at some yeah. point. I think it's really interesting, and and you know the danger doesn't go away. You know, after no. after the invasion scare is over, you know, Br- Br- Britain is still imperiled. It's just not you know there's, there's not going to be an invasion, but but that doesn't mean to say that. You haven't got agents coming no. over or e-boats or a Chanel booter or whatever you want to call them or, you know, a whole host of, of nasties that could kind of come in and cause havoc and cause problems. Yeah, so, you know, absolutely they're playing a vital role. Yeah, well, because after, because after all, the Allies... the Yeah, because after all, the Allies in Europe, that's an amphibious campaign. <laughs> until Until they have a, you know, until they have proper established ports... It's a you know even when even when they get to Brussels it's a lodgment because they don't have you know apart from Cherbourg they don't have proper ports it's the it's the yeah it's and the you need those but you need those people patrolling it and patrolling and keeping the waters clear yeah yeah and, and, you know, want... and, it, and, it, and it's very easy to just sort of say that people are sort of messing around in you know sort of old yachtsmen sort of messing around having a really great time but but you know you're you're what you're doing there is just making the most of of a, of a talent and a and a and a certain skill set you've already got yeah 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 so in conclusion yeah. no it wasn't a waste of time <laughs> um now mark mark one one last question mark sidaway says come on chaps after the superb podcast with colin bell i thought it was time to talk about pierre klosterman well, I mean, yeah, I absolutely love your podcast. And I'd be really made up if you had a chat about Pierre. I've got a 1951 edition of the book, The Big Show. My dear old dad gave this to me when he was 13. And I've always admired this pilot. Jeff Wellham's book is wonderfully similar. Much more on the rigours of training. But there are so many parallels. And which do you prefer, Spitfire or Tempest? And you can't do a Colin Bell and answer mosquitoes. Keep up the good work, Mark Sidaway. Well, Mark, we I read um, back at the start, start of the pandemic. It was one of our, one of our books, wasn't it? Um, I mean, I read so many books to the 
to the pandemic. I've forgotten what they all were. Um, <laughs> but I have the big show. Now. <laughs> I have the big show in French as well as as well as the English edition. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I, I just, it's one of my favourite memoirs of the war. I, I think it's absolutely brilliant, and I love his. I love his honesty. I think the first flight he does in Spitfire is what is one of the best descriptions of flying Spitfire. Um, I seem to remember it's in the snow and this sort of sense yep. of kind of, you know, we're Frenchmen, we're, we're kind of sort of, you know, we're in the RAF, but we're still Frenchmen. And I, I thought that was, that came across very, very strongly. All the stuff in Normandy is amazing when he goes over, because yeah. he's he, he's returning to France, he goes over in his sort of, you know, best Yes, in his service uniform, isn't he? Yeah. And, and gets out and gets covered in dust and is absolutely trashed. Um, and also the kind of, you know, the, 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 the breakdown he has. You know, yeah. he has to come off ops because he's he's absolutely stuffed, and you know he's sort of it's incredible. And all those those the final months of the war when he's in Tempest, and and you know so many of his colleagues and and friends are are still being killed, and it's just relentless. Yeah. You know, the only time I've come across yeah. that really a sort of comparable um, situation is is the Sherwood Rangers. You know, and and their sort of revolving doors and relentlessness. It's it's got that same sort of feel. Well. To it. well. Would you not well, agree? with I the mean... with the jocks has that exact. Well, no, right. completely. And with the jocks again, the same thing is that. Because, and, and this is the thing I keep coming back. That you, I think you've got to always remember is, you know, the last phase of the war is painted as Allied preponderance of stuff and people, and and they've got you know they can they can stonk the Germans for a day if they want to and all that. But it's still, the attrition continues. I, I was just uh, today I was just looking at because it's in the battle diary and then it's in uh, in Peter White's book. They have an accident when they're bringing anti-tank mines up to the front. And four, I think 40 people are killed because the, one of the mines goes off at the front of the line of blokes and it goes all the way along the line and then blows up the main dump and everyone's killed. And, the, and, and it happens 100 yards from the battalion HQ. And the Colonel, the Colonel Melville, he gets up to call for stretcher bearers and there's no one there because everyone's dead. Everyone has been killed. Everyone in the vicinity. Five, eight. Five battalion HQ Batman are killed just in an accident because one of the someone trips over or something or there's a mortar lands and sets off one of the mines and all and and that's what it's that's what's going on and that's sort of that's just the friction of being present in a war zone rather than fighting a battle not putting in a, an offensive not going up to a start line and that that's what Klosterman's book tells you about the end of the war about the last six months of the war. It's an amazing book. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week. Um, uh, we tang- we've we've put tangents on the tangents, haven't we, Jim? It's fair to yeah, say. Yeah, we absolutely have. Yeah, no, it's been good. That's what, that's what, that's, I mean, I think we've surpassed ourselves in range and scope. <laughs> I mean, I don't we've, have. We've a crossed pre- oceans. We've crossed frontiers. <laughs> you know, and we've, I, crossed, and we've crossed different types of 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 of, of service. And tangentially raised more than three million quid for children in need. How about that? There we go. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> anyway, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We're back on Thursday with the fantastic panel conversation about the Eastern Front, which features Alex Ritchie Waitman Bourne and Katya Hoyer. Um, uh, re- that was a, a, um, a really, really good uh, chat that they did and also quite disturbing some of it. Um, and Family Stories is back this coming Sunday. Your family stories from the greatest conflict of all time, how it touched your family's lives. Um, That starts at the weekend. Um, We'll see you soon. Auf Wiedersehen. Adios.